back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week in episode 51, I'm undertaking a story quite out of character for me really. I'm going to look at the history of Aussie rules football. My friends who listen will now be falling about laughing. I haven't a sporting bone in my body. In the Australian Football League's fixture for 2021, rounds 11 and 12 are marked as the AFL Indigenous rounds, this year labelled the Sir Doug Nichols rounds in honour of the Indigenous footballer, pastor, leader, activist and governor. These matches also highlight and celebrate the rich history of the game and reflect on some of the truly outstanding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players. And I thought it might also be a good time, mid-season, to have a look at how the unique football code came into being. International listeners may find this episode more puzzling than usual, because Aussie rules football really is a different game to any played elsewhere. It's fast-paced, often high-scoring, requires great fitness, athletic and ball skills, and is as close to a ritualised, or dare I say civilised combat, as might be possible. And once you begin watching a match, you're almost always drawn in by the sheer pace and artistry of the game. Check out one of the YouTube links I've placed on the Australian Histories podcast episode website to see what an Aussie rules football match looks like. If you don't have your own beloved team to barrack for, you just choose a side and start yelling at the screen. It's quite cathartic. Anyway, see what you think. I've missed my end of May deadline getting this one out, but May also marked the third anniversary of the Australian Histories podcasts, and I have been pondering the content and pace for the coming fourth year. I'll be making some changes in the coming year to ensure the podcast production is sustainable. I want to thank Darren M for his podcast support recently. In fact, thanks to all those who've contributed over the last three years. I appreciate your help in keeping the show afloat, and send thanks again to all those who've been able to contribute in some way. Though Australian rules football started in the late 1850s, initially based loosely on the rugby school game, Within 20 years, it had already evolved to become Australia's very own different and distinctive code. Drawing large spectator crowds, it continued to develop over the next 150 years and indeed continues each season to test and try modifications to improve play and to make the game safer while maintaining its athletic physicality and excitement. So let's now look at how Australian rules football came to be. Picks it back towards the wing. In front, Franklin, knocked away by Morris. Naismith sold a teammate in the trouble. Quick thinking by Kennedy. And Franklin was run down. Tom Boyd's got it. Tom Boyd goes long. How will it bounce? The stadium holds its breath. It's a goal. And the Western suburbs... As the historian Rob Hess wrote in his book A National Game, The History of Australian Rules Football, quote, Football, in one form or another, probably dates back to the beginning of all human amusements. There were Indigenous football games not only in Australia, but also throughout the world, and the skills learnt were probably excellent preparation for war and survival. There certainly were ball games being played here by the first Australians before the British arrived, and the newcomers brought with them their own familiar sports and pastimes, common in Britain at the time, to be replicated and modified for local conditions in this new land. For competition, cricket was probably the big one for the British, but for ball-kicking games, they would often play versions of some of the more common ball games played in the English public schools, which we would call private schools here. Games like today's soccer and a primitive type of rugby game. 
For those competition games at that time, there were various local and traditional ways of playing with differing acceptable play and behaviours, but there were few recorded codified sets of rules to define a particular game. Outside of those schools, there was no formal football clubs or leagues. Indeed, one of the things that surprised me most in doing this research, and I'm guessing it'll surprise many of you, is that the creation of Australian rules football and the formation of the original clubs can lay claim to being the earliest football clubs in the world, set up to play competition football with a codified set of rules. Blaney wrote, quote, of the main codes of football played, Australian rules is one of the oldest. It is older than American football or gridiron, older than rugby league, older than the modern version of Gaelic football, unquote. Only rugby might claim to be older if you count those school competitions. He states that not even any of the famous soccer clubs are as old as the senior football clubs in Victoria. Melbourne Football Club came into being in 1858, Geelong in 1859 and Carlton in 1864, by comparison, Notts County in the UK formed in 1862, Stoke City in 1863, and Nottingham Forest in 1865. He continues, quote, Essendon and St Kilda and some of the middle-aged clubs in the Australian Football League have a longer history than the oldest senior clubs in such famous football nations as Germany and Argentina. Even Collingwood, which is a young club by Australian standards, being founded in 1892, is as old as the oldest of the senior Italian clubs, Genoa, unquote. And I found that quite amazing. And just to clarify, if I'm saying simply football or footy in this podcast, I'm generally going to be referring to Aussie rules football or the unstructured ball games that were being played beforehand in the mid-1800s. So the British were playing semi-structured ball games of some sort, but there was not a club or league structure in the public domain to formalise and promote club competition more widely. There seems to have been a greater interest in developing and codifying the game rules around the early to mid-1800s. Historian Geoffrey Blaney, in his book A Game of Our Own, writes that it was there, at the rugby school, that rugby football began to take its distinctive form in 1823. Soccer and its earlier informal versions obviously have an ancient lineage, and it's a code that has strong patronage and support in Australia now too, particularly since the post-war influx of European migrants. American football, or gridiron, while huge in the US, has a fairly niche following in Australia, but is noted in the research as being another of those games that was modified and evolved into its unique form, like Australian rules did, from those early British ball games that were brought from the old country. The playing of some kind of informal football games were certainly happening up and down the country, in school grounds, on public lands and at fairs and public gatherings. Formal cricket competitions were already well established by the mid-1800s, but by 1858 there seemed some desire to find something more organised to do over the winter months too. With the booming gold rush economy and the increasing leisure time for working men on public holidays and later Saturday afternoons, there was a growing interest in sporting pursuits in general to play and to watch. Cricket might suffice in the summer months for many, and others played those less structured footballing in public parks, and I note that the term footballing was actually used in some newspaper stories, reporting on activities going on in the parks around Melbourne. I thought that was a term invented by Pixie Ann Wheatley from Fast Forward. <laughs> 
So large groups of blokes were already turning up at public parks to kick and scrummage a ball around for a few hours. The time seemed ripe for the rise of a more structured game with a regular competition. There were several men instrumental in getting the ball rolling, so to speak, but we can probably slate the first public instigation to one Tom Wills. Wills, a talented cricketer and a member of the Melbourne Cricket Club, made a plea for the formation of a winter competition, some kind of formal sport that could amuse and invigorate the men until the next cricket season resumed. Publishing a letter titled Winter Practice on 10th of July 1858 in Bell's Life in Victoria and Sporting Chronicle, Wills wrote, and I abridge it here a little, Sir, now that cricket has been put aside for some few months to come, and cricketers have assumed somewhat of a chrysalis nature, for a time only, tis true, rather than allow this state of torpor to creep over them and stifle their new supple limbs, why can they not, I say, form a football club and form a committee of three or more to draw up a code of laws? If a club of this sort were got up, it would be a vast benefit to any cricket ground to be trampled upon and would make the turf quite firm and durable. Besides which, it would benefit those who are inclined to become stout from having their joints encased in useless superabundant flesh. <laughs> and he then suggests the formation of a rifle club too, though I'm not sure how that would have kept the cricketers physically fit. But clearly he was at a loose end and he just needed some competition to keep him sharp. Trusting that someone will take up the matter and form either of the above clubs, or at any rate some athletic games, I remain yours truly, T.W. Wills. Unquote. Wills himself had been instrumental in arranging an inter school footballing competition between Melbourne Grammar and St Kilda Grammar. But as yet, while their masters were keen for them to all participate in the manly pursuits, such as the new English game of rugby, to date there had not been a formalised structure to such a competition, and Wills was keen to introduce some changes to the original rugby game that he had brought back with him. Melbourne was said to have bested St Kilda, the Melbourne Grammar Master recording in June of 1858, that his school had won the game. The match was a little chaotic, based largely on the game Wills had learned at rugby school in England, but with a local twist. Still, it was a hit. Soon afterwards, Scotch College also expressed an interest in competing. By then, Wills's letter from July had attracted some interest, and more spectators were on hand for their next game. In August of 1858, a newspaper announcement stated, quote, a grand football match will be played this day between the Scotch College and the Church of England Grammar School near Melbourne Cricket Ground. Luncheon at the Pavilion, 40 aside. The game to commence at 12 o'clock, And they played on the parkland adjoining the cricket ground rather than on it in a game lasting four hours, but without any definitive winner emerging. The light was fading and they agreed to meet again to complete the competition but again no result. Meeting finally on September 4th, having managed two goals each, they had to abandon the competition as a draw, with no winner, bringing that first three-team school competition to a close. Meanwhile, following Wills's earlier letter, calling for the formation of a club, another MCC member, Jerry Bryant, published a follow-up letter on Saturday, July 31st, 
he advised that a football game would be hosted that afternoon at the Richmond Paddock for those who wished to play the game, and that he would provide the balls and some team colours to assist. And several other public games were played in this rather ad hoc manner that year. There did seem to be an appetite for the sport. Wills and the other early enthusiasts were particularly interested in creating a new game, though, not simply following the rules of the various British school rugby codes. And after that advertised game, they were hopeful of forming a committee that would draw up a few local rules, based on the issues arising from the day's game. While that match was well attended and deemed a success, either the rules were never written up or any copy of them has been lost to us. Those first games had been successful and interesting for the public, and as it did seem likely there would be enough enthusiasm to try again the following year, a new code could emerge. They wanted rules that would draw their contest away from rugby somewhat to a less violent game, more suited to large playing fields and the harder grounds in the Antipodes. By the end of the 1858 winter, at least three football clubs had been founded. Melbourne, South Yarra and St Kilda, as well as several school teams in the city and nearer suburbs. Next summer came and went, and some of the men from the recently formed Melbourne Football Club met at the end of the cricket season on Tuesday, May 17, 1859, to draw up the rules for the coming football season. They were James Thompson, Tom Wills, Tom Smith and William Hammersley. The resulting Melbourne rules, as they became known, are considered to be the influential foundation set from which the Australian rules football game grew. While limited in number and scope, only 10 actually in the first iteration, they did mark the game as a new development from those played previously. They were short, they could be memorised easily and recorded for the most part only the major differences from games that might already have been familiar to players. So this left a great deal still to be figured out on match day. The new Melbourne rules stated, 1. The distance between the goals and the goalposts shall be decided upon by the captains of the sides playing. 2. The captains on each side shall toss for the choice of goal. The side losing toss has to kick off from the centre point between the goals. So that's different today's centre bounce to start the game. 3. A goal must be kicked fairly between the posts without touching either of them or a portion of the person or of any player on either side. 4. The game shall be played within a space of not more than 200 yards wide, the same to be measured equally on each side of a line drawn through the centres of two goals, and the two posts to be called kick-off posts shall be erected at a distance of 30 yards on each side of the goal posts at both ends and in a straight line with them. 5. In case the ball is kicked behind goal, any one of the side behind whose goal it is kicked may bring it 20 yards in from any portion of the space between the kick-off posts and shall kick it as nearly as possible in line with the opposite goal. 6. Any player catching the ball directly from the foot may call, Mark! He then has a free kick, no player from the opposite side being allowed to come inside the spot marked. 7. Tripping and pushing are both allowed, but no hacking. When any player is in rapid motion or in possession of the ball, except in the case provided for in Rule 6. So, they're saying tripping and pushing is allowed unless the player has taken a mark. And hacking, by the way, which was disallowed, was the deliberate kicking and scraping of the opponent's shins, studded shoes being worn by some players to deliberately cause more damage. <sighs> Terrible. 
so you can see why they wanted to move away from the rugby game where hacking was allowed. 8. The ball may be taken in hand only when caught from the foot or on the hop. In no case shall it be lifted from the ground. 9. When the ball goes out of bounds, the same being indicated by a row of posts, it shall be brought back to the point where it crossed the boundary line and thrown in at right angles with that line. The final rule. 10. The ball, while in play, may under no circumstances be thrown. Of the resulting play, Blaney wrote, quote, The heaving, pushing and charging were probably restrained compared to rugby, but it was still a congested game by modern standards, unquote. And the regular low or nil scores for the early years support that assumption. Now, Tom Wills spent some of his early childhood in Western Victoria, his family running sheep and their homestead situated near Ararat. This is Jabwarong country, and Blaney notes one of Wills's cousins recalling that Wills must have been mixing and playing with the Indigenous families in the area, and that young Tom learned to speak their language with some fluency, saying he was, quote, very clever at picking up their songs, which he delivered with a very amusing imitation of their voice and gestures, unquote. So there has been some interest in the idea that Aboriginal football games may have influenced Wills's picture of what a new and unique Australian football code might look like. There is evidence, particularly across the southern and western Victorian areas, of a high-kicking ball game being commonly played by the first Australians. This game is mostly referred to in language as mangaruk, meaning ball, though this may not be the term used by every language group that plays something similar. Mangrook was played in the nearby Garraweed or Grampian region in the western district of Victoria and was thus recorded from the recollections of one of the indigenous players. Quote, in playing a game at ball which they kicked about, the different totems took different sides and there were men and women on each side. Johnny Connolly remembers that he, his mother and her mother all played on the same side at ball. His cousin George played with the warrant on the other side. Unquote. Quote, Connolly's description of the two sides in Indigenous football as replicating these totemic divisions suggests that the game was important not only as an amusement and skill development, but also as a means of reinforcing these political kin relationships. Unquote. Hocking and Reedy also found that the assistant protector of Aborigines, William Thomas, in 1858 had recorded quote, the Mangrook or the ball, is a favourite game with boys and men. The ball is kicked into the air, not along the ground. There is a general scramble at the ball. The tall blackfellows stand the best chance. When caught, it is again kicked up in the air with great force and ascends as straight up and high as when thrown by the hand." Unquote. Another observer from the time also noted that Indigenous football was, quote, one of the favourite games in which 50 or as many as 100 players engage at a time. The local game he observed was played with two sides formed according to their totem, white cockatoo against black cockatoo, quail against snake, matching the totemic formations recalled by Johnny Connolly. Unquote. So certainly, Mangrook, as described here, has some similarity to the footy we know today, unlike a soccer-type game, for example. And I'll place a picture of a fantastic possum skin mangrook, which is displayed on the Culture Victoria website for your interest.
but there is still a lot of dispute amongst historians about just how influential Mangrook may have been in the formative thinking of Wills in his desire for an Australian game. Certainly Wills and the others were keen to open the game up a little more, but the game that might look more like Mangrook, as described in the limited records we know about, was decades in the making, arising long after Wills was championing the new game. Tom did seem keen to add some high-kicking and open play to the game, but so did many of the other early influences involved. And sadly, Tom himself, despite being a prolific writer and, and keen to have his influential place noted in the formation of the game, he never recorded anything at all about actually joining in Aboriginal Mungrook play or watching it or being influenced in any other way. So it seems that there's not yet consensus anyway for supporting that idea, and to date it has not been included in the official AFL footy origin story. Of course, we do need to note that written or recorded evidence from that time, which might have come from the first Australians themselves, is always going to be limited, and so we can't write it off either. Basically, this idea is still under much discussion. My thoughts on the matter, and this is only my opinion and should only be considered as such, is that some influence seems possible, even if subconscious. If Mangrook was played and witnessed by Wills as a child, and it's possible he saw it or may have joined in it if he was friendly enough to be learning their language, that the high-kicking and marking of that game may have been of interest to such an athletic young boy who enjoyed playing sport. Of course, heading off as a ten-year-old to England would have seen him more absorbed in rugby-type games for the rest of his youth. But even if so, such a game was certainly not adopted in the early days. It took decades to develop into something that we might recognise today. Indeed, we might think that today's game sounds much more like the Mangaruk described in those early recollections. So, in reflecting during these AFL Indigenous rounds, it's great to be able to consider, though, that even if Mangaruk was not at front of mind when Wills and the others started envisaging uh, an Australian game, it's brilliant that it has panned out now to have some of the types of play that were native to parts of this country, and that one impressive element is just how many Indigenous players are naturally talented and suited to the play, including in the women's competition. I'll put a link through to the current AFL Indigenous Players maps so you can get an idea of where the current players have been recruited from right around the country. Back in July of 1859, in the second season of organised football, trial matches were actually played on the Melbourne cricket ground from time to time, but generally football fields and facilities remained primitive for some years. The Richmond Paddock, the parkland sited right next to the MCG, where a great many matches were played, was not entirely suited to the task. <laughs> Slattery records one reporter noting in 1863, quote, the gum trees, some of which are most disgustingly close to the goals, are six feet in diameter. One of those huge monsters of the forest was holding the ball in its arms, much to the annoyance of players from both sides, who surrounded the base. A good many pebbles were sent up to the rescue, one of which directed him a steady aim, brought the globe to the grass." Unquote. But they just got on with it for the most part, and the clubs would end up creating dedicated spaces for their play in time. In 1860, the first Proto-Football Council met, consisting of representatives from those early clubs, and they agreed to adopt the 1859 Melbourne Rules as its core set that they might all play to, thus reducing the potential conflict resulting from the locally played variants. 
These agreements meant the game developed over time into a more mobile, high-kicking game rather than embedding the rugby-type scrummages, though for a long time the sheer numbers on the field meant that the ball was often kept in close. Wills and the other early game developers didn't care to import rugby rules wholesale. Instead, they wanted to pioneer a homegrown game that was better suited to the rough parks they'd need to play on, foster a more athletic sport and discourage the more aggressive physical contact, hopefully reducing the propensity for injury. I mean, working men enjoyed their sport, but they still needed to be able to turn up fit for work on a Monday. According to Blaney, after only two seasons of the developing game, the leaders believed they had already brought about a reduction in rough play and injury. But clearly this is all relative. Just over a decade into the new competition, South Melbourne was offering medical insurance to its players in an acknowledgement of the risks involved. It looks pretty rough to me, and to this day, modifying grounds and rules of play to help protect the knee joints on the drier, harder ovals, or to reduce high tackles and potential injury to heads, for example, is still going on in the AFL. Blaney wrote, quote, It's commonly said that Australians learned their games from England and then made them more aggressive. Here was a new game which, for a brief time, moved in the reverse direction prompting a few English immigrants of the 1860s to write home and tell their friends that here at last was a football game for a true gentleman. Unquote. <laughs> Fancy Australian rules being described as a true gentleman's game. The next major revised set of rules were published after a meeting of delegates of the clubs on Tuesday 8th of May 1866. No Tom Wills present for that meeting. Instead, it was Harrison, Wardell, O. Mullane, Murray, Clark, James and Chadwick. And I'll just highlight the major developments here rather than read them all. Rule 1 was modified so that the size of the playing field was now roughly defined as not more than 200 yards and not more than 150 yards wide. The goalposts were to be 7 yards apart and of unlimited height, so no longer simply decided by the team captains. Rule 2, the captain still tossed for a choice of goal and the losing side had the kick-off, but now it was to take place from the centre and they would change ends after each goal was kicked. This changed in 1872 when the end changes occurred at half-time instead. 3, 4, 5 and 6 remained much the same, related to goaling, kicking and marking, but 7 now stipulated that tripping was also strictly prohibited. Pushing with the hands or body was allowed, though, and holding the man only allowed if a player had the ball in hand, unless it was marked. Eight reiterated the ball may be taken in hand at any time, but not carried further than is necessary for a kick, and if running, a player would have to bounce it every five or six yards. So now it's beginning to look more like footy. Nine saw an out-of-bounds ball thrown back in where it crossed the boundary line. Ten stated the ball while in play may under no circumstances be thrown. Eleven added in case of deliberate infringement of any of the above rules, the opposite team could claim a free kick from the place where the breach of rule was made. Twelve introduced an umpire to the game, though not as we know them today. They were there to be the sole judges of goals and breaches of rules and the captains could appeal to them in case of dispute. So we can see more clearly the core of today's rules in some of these. 
the ground size was coming down and tripping was banned, the mark was a highlight and carrying the ball was not allowed for any great distance, nor was it to be thrown. Free kicks could be awarded for opponents' infringements and the independent umpire was introduced, though they were used in quite a different way to the umpires of today. Before 1869, to win a game, a team must score at least two goals. This is why so many games went on for hours and still ended without a result. But that year they introduced a match time of 100 minutes, in four quarters, and the team leading when that time expired was declared the winner. That same year, team representatives met and drew up a competition fixture, so it was by then becoming a much more organised arrangement. The ball shape was unspecified for many years, and round balls were much easier to get in those early days, but still the oval was often used. Some criticised the oval balls for their erratic behaviour, but by 1876 new rules stipulated play only with a rugby ball, similar to the oval ball we are familiar with today. And this oval ball does indeed have an unpredictable bounce and demands particular ball skills, but it also provides great excitement by its random behaviour at times, especially for the watching crowds. Sheer physical strength was probably most important when Australian football was much closer to rugby, a push and a shove game, but athleticism, ball skills and general fitness came to be the mark of successful players as the game and the field opened up. Geelong, for example, soon made training and fitness their strength and the clubs were beginning to want to recruit good players to fill their teams rather than just the locals. With men in the regional areas looking for sporting opportunities too, the game spread to the country towns and recruiting from outside a club's natural area would become a point of contention over the years, particularly when money entered the game. But for the spectators, their team loyalties were often local in the early days, and some clubs grew spectacularly. So let's have a look at the clubs, or at least the ones that remain in the competition today. There were a great many others that never made it into the present AFL competition, in their original formation at least, such as South Yarra, Emerald Hill, or University, for example. Though many stayed on, or were resurrected in the VFA, VFL leagues at some point, some clubs formed very early but had to take a hiatus when their membership numbers dropped, and only the Melbourne club was able to field a team every season in that first decade. I'm largely gathering the following data from the book The Australian Game of Football, edited by Slattery, which, as always, will be in the reference list, and I'm mostly just including the clubs that we might recognise today. There was actually a lot more going on in those early years and lots more data about them in that book if you're interested. One 1860s newspaper report noted, Nearly every suburb boasts of a football club, and Geelong and Ballarat too have taken first-class degrees in the game. In 1871 there were 25 recognised teams, the following year 60, and 1873 100 clubs. But Melbourne was the founding club, the oldest being formed in 1858, and Geelong was next in 1859. They took the competition very seriously, being the first to request their players also make themselves available to train midweek from 1860 onwards. It was said that they used an oval ball in their first match against Melbourne in September of 1860. It was a nil-score game, though, as they often were, so no winner. <laughs> Carlton formed in 1864, North Melbourne Hotham in 1869, Port in 1870, Essendon in 1872, and St Kilda Football Club in 1873. 
South Melbourne was established in 1874, though we know now that club has undergone a merger to survive into the 2000s, becoming the Sydney Swans in 1982. And I'll talk about that briefly in a moment, as it marked a particularly difficult time for Aussie Rules supporters. 1877, the Footscray Football Club formed, today known as the Western Bulldogs. That same year, the Victorian Football Association, the VFA, was established, and initially comprised of the eight Victorian teams. They began compiling a ladder of team results, though data was still pretty slim at that time, unlike the forensic measurements of every match and player we have today. Remembering that Australia didn't federate until 1901, the country still consisted of separate colonies. In 1879, the first intercolonial match took place in Melbourne, Victoria versus South Australia, and 10,000 spectators saw the Victorians victorious. <laughs> Fitzroy Football Club was formed in 1883, though again, in order to make it through the difficult period at the end of the 20th century, they merged and were reinvented as the Brisbane Lions in 1996. Richmond was established in 1885 and Collingwood in 1892. Hawthorne was the last of the original Victorian teams to form in 1902. With the drive for a strong national competition, newer interstate teams joined in the 1990s. Port Adelaide, established in 1870, joined in 1997. West Coast Eagles was founded in 1986, Adelaide Football Club in 1990, Fremantle in 94 and most recently Gold Coast Football Club and the Greater Western Sydney Giants forming in 2008, all joining the competition in the year following formation. Back in 1896, the existing Victorian Football Association, the VFA, saw a little agitation and internal club politics going on, and it led to some teams leaving the existing overarching body, representing the clubs, and creating instead the VFL the Victorian Football League. Geelong, Essendon, Collingwood, Fitzroy, Melbourne and South Melbourne were at the vanguard. Carlton and St Kilda joined them soon afterwards. So 1897 saw the first eight-team VFL competition, with a final series determining a premiership. Richmond moved to the VFL in 1902, and Footscray, Hawthorne and North Melbourne, Hotham in 1925. By then, the VFL was running the dominant competition. The VFA clubs continued with their competition as a separate senior contest. 1911, the Northern Territory separated from South Australia and came into being as a federal territory. They formed their own football league in 1917, but to date there is no AFL team based in the Northern Territory, despite the game being widely played there and a good number of exceptional AFL players being recruited from the clubs there. One element of Australian rules that was a little different from other codes around the world, certainly until more recent decades at least, was the interest and involvement of large numbers of women. Women formed a sizeable percentage of those who embraced and supported the game and attended as spectators right from the beginning. Hess suggested between a third and half of the spectators were women. In 1865, one of the papers noted, quote, a good many ladies enjoyed the scene, and any deed of daring, a clever dodge or a good kick was duly appreciated by a round of applause from the onlookers, unquote. And how about this line from Hess's book? <laughs> quote, female barrackers stoically sitting in the rain yelling abuse at the umpire or decorating their prams in club colours are enduring reflections of the passionate commitment that women displayed for Australian rules football, 
unquote. <laughs> Barracking indicated rowdy appreciation, and the women were right in there with the men, making their voices heard. Just as an aside about that term, barracking might mean yelling abuse in most places in the world, but primarily in Australia and New Zealand, it's a more friendly term for cheering and spurring on your team. Blaney suggests the word originated from the vocal cheering and enthusiastic play of the soldiers housed in the Victoria barracks in Melbourne up to 1870. Others suggest it came from a cricket first and was and was quite a pejorative term before being adopted by football and redeemed as simply spirited support for your team. Others suggest even earlier origins from Gaelic football to Pigeon English. Either way, it is now a term strongly associated with Aussie rules. Who do you barrack for is a common question. Of women and football, Brown wrote, quote, It was the case in the 1870s, as it is today, that women attend games of Australian football in greater proportions than at any other football code in the world, unquote, and suggests further that, quote, the code's founders intended it to be truly egalitarian and embraced by all. Reports of the day point out the extra care being taken at football grounds to ensure maximum comfort for all, but particularly for women, unquote. No doubt this approach also promoted and ensured the game could become a family affair, an interest the whole family could get involved in. With costs kept pretty low, in the early days at least, a family could attend, have a pie and, for some, even a beer, barrack loudly and enjoy an exciting spectacle on a Saturday arvo. If you were a fella hoping to catch the footy, what a great date it would be if your girl loved to see the competition too. All the better if she followed your team. And for the single women, you would get to enjoy the exhilaration of the match and maybe get to meet young gentlemen in the crowd, equally enamoured with the game. Women would watch and barrack, understand the rules, admire the athletic skills and follow particular players and their abilities right from the beginning of the competition, just as we do today. Well, not me, obviously, because I've already confessed my shameful lack of interest in sport. But I have many friends, female and male, who are devoted to and involved in football, spending much leisure time discussing and watching it. And who patiently and competently explain footballing things to me, because in Victoria at least, there's barely a day that goes by that some footballing news is not on the tips of everyone's lips. <laughs> now, you normally play at half forward. Aren't you good enough to be a hole forward? <laughs> No, that's a position on the ground. Now, um, a big part of Aussie footy is holding the man. Um, do you think I'd be good at footy? Because, like, I really like holding the man. Uh, yeah, I think you'd be very good at it. Maybe later. You can show me. Oh, uh, yes, I'd be very pleased to help you out. Thank you. Now, drop kicks aren't used in footy anymore. So what are all the drop kicks doing now instead of playing? Uh, none of you. Uh, no, they're, uh, no, drop kick was a type of kick, not a person. You've been reported by the umpires a few times. Do you have to show your mum and dad your report card? <laughs> yes, it seems that way sometimes, yeah. However, all that said about women and the game, though, Brown writes of women in football, quote, If women belong to any category in the club scene, at the elite level and the grassroots, it was what they could provide as volunteers, unquote. That book does then acknowledge and talk more about the contributions of women in the football clubs, in the VFL and the AFL and the like, but not about women playing the game. Though, I'll admit, I didn't read it end to end. The index didn't give any further clues, though. And this is a sorry omission if you're recording the history of the game. 
there were also women with an appetite for playing Aussie rules. In the very early days, one Melbourne Presbyterian Ladies College student suggested, quote, that a football club be established at the school because she had observed how much fun, enjoyment and excitement boys seemed to have in the game, unquote. Sadly, her suggestion was rejected. Hess suggests women began playing the game, or at least they were recorded to have done so, in Perth in 1915. There, a competition between female workers of the retailer Foy and Gibsons was arranged as a charity game, with a team of factory workers versus the shop assistance team. It was such a huge success, it was repeated and expanded in the following years. Women playing footy remained a novelty in reality, but in 1933 a match with women's teams representing Carlton and Richmond was watched by a crowd of more than 10,000. And later, in 1947, other women's games associated with the VFL teams had 25,000 onlookers. Despite the obvious interest and the amateur footy competitions being played by women in the 20th century, the AFL didn't act until 2010, finally considering a report which recommended the creation of an AFL women's competition. 2013 saw exhibition matches and the inaugural women's teams were announced in 2016. A truncated premiership competition started for the Women's League with the first official game in February of 2017, Collingwood versus Carlton. The interest in that match resulted in a massive crowd turnout, most of whom couldn't fit into the small ground chosen for the game, the AFL having underestimated the appeal. And spectacular audience numbers were recorded for the televised games too. The AFLW competition following is strong and it has already identified some spectacular athletes amongst the players. The competition continues to grow along with its huge following. In the earliest contests, the teams had no uniforms and were differentiated on the ground by wearing coloured caps as they did in England or a coloured ribbon pinned to the sleeve. In Melbourne, as the spectators multiplied and the clubs desired supporters, it was to the benefit of the team to be more identifiable at a distance and a uniform of sorts began appearing. In September of 1862, the teams generally dressed in their own coloured cap and shirt and white trousers. At a match between Carlton and Adelaide in 1887, the players were allocated numbers on their jumpers and footy cards were printed for the first time, identifying the numbered players to help the fans get to know them. Footy cards like those would become a huge thing in the future, as would the numbers. I said I was no actual footy fan myself, but I can remember footy cards being all the rage at school. They were used as a marketing hook by many organisations and companies. I don't know, are they still out there, being collected by kids today? 1912 saw the VFL permanently introduce those numbers on player jumpers, the VFA having adopted it five years earlier. This greatly improved identification of individual players and must surely have increased the celebrity of popular players. Their actions and play could be more easily followed by the spectators and no doubt the umpires, so maybe not always a good thing either way. 1924 the home teams began wearing black shorts and the visitors' white shorts, improving further the recognition of teams on the ground. Now, I just want to mention a few more details about the development of the game, and again, much of this data following has come from Slattery's book. In terms of participation, Slattery suggests that by 1870, only 
Twelve years after the idea was suggested, there were 4,500 men playing at various matches on a Saturday afternoon. The big games drew a huge number of spectators, and it saw them frequently invading the grounds in their excitement to follow the game. While police were stationed to assist, it led to popular matches being played on existing cricket grounds, most of which had low wooden fences along the boundary to assist in crowd control. And playing on those grounds was no problem for a football code which didn't play on an exactly measured field at the time. Indeed, I imagine that familiarity playing on a cricket ground moved the game in the end to adopt the overplaying field rather than a rectangular one. But footy is a very physical game, potentially cutting up the grounds in winter, and the issue of damage to the pitch continued to make football being played there unpopular with the cricket clubs. And this remains a point of dissension in suburban and country clubs who must share their sports fields, even today. In 1879, a couple of football games were actually played under the new electric lights of the time. But it was not deemed a great success, the Australasian paper reporting, quote, the match by electric light was a great result in point of financial result and attendance, the latter numbering about 8,000 paying members and another 10,000 outside on the free list. But from a light point of view, and football too, it was not so good, the illuminating being scarcely sufficient and its distribution hardly so judicious as it might have been." Unquote. The use of those lights never really took off, as they cast difficult shadows and the ball was very hard to see. But I did mention this innovation in the Ned Kelly series, if you remember. The police called for these lights to be sent by train to Glen Rowan to light up the site of the siege with the Kellys. Also in 1884, the VFA created a register of umpires who were to be paid independence assigned to each game. But controversy and concern about paying players was argued for many years. Officially banned in the early days, it was never policed, and some clubs flouted the rule. 1886 saw another major revision of rules, most notably stipulating 25-minute quarters and providing timekeepers to mark the quarters by ringing a bell. Free kicks would be awarded against a player who deliberately forced a ball out of bounds, and central umpires began using a whistle to signal infringements. The following year, Pushing in the back was prohibited. 1891 marked the development of more distinct on-field positions for the players and further opened up the play. 1895 saw the inclusion of boundary umpires at some of the games and these were included in the code in 1904. 1897 finally saw behinds being counted. Goals kicked cleanly between the goalposts are worth six points, a ball hitting the goalpost being touched on the way through or ending up between the goalposts and the outer post was deemed a behind, being behind goal, and was awarded one point. This adds greatly to the excitement and interest in the game today and sometimes makes for very interesting play and close results. The same year, the marking rule was clarified. A mark could only be claimed if the ball had travelled at least ten yards. Weston claims this change was one of the most significant in the game. 1899 saw the player numbers set for a team at 18, though it later crept up to 20, allowing for two available for interchange. Today a team remains at 18 players on field, with four available for interchange. In 1908, the first Australasian football carnival was held at the MCG in Victoria to mark the 50th anniversary of the game's inception. 
having recently federated all six Australian states as they were at the time, and New Zealand competed in the Australian rules competition for the first and only time. The Victorians, as might be expected, won all their matches, but interestingly, New Zealand beat Queensland and New South Wales. How interesting the comp might be if New Zealand had continued playing Aussie rules at that level. They are formidable foes in rugby and cricket. Wiki says there are five Australian football leagues in New Zealand with 30,000 registered players, so there is a good internal competition of the code there. But to my admittedly limited knowledge, there seems there are no cross-Tasman competitions, though there seems to have been a few exhibition matches with the AFL. Anyway, 1911 saw official player payments sanctioned at last by the VFL. And this might be interesting. April 12th, 1912, saw the first football record published, and I believe that continues in publication today. 1916 saw most clubs take a hiatus owing to World War I and further disruption into 1919 due to the flu pandemic that was sweeping the world then. We note the disruption to the game in 2021 due to our current pandemic. The most notable thing perhaps being that the grand final was played away from the MCG for the first time. In 1924, the Brownlow medal for best and fairest player was introduced. World War II again impacted on the competition and the MCG was used as military barracks for a time. 1948 marked the first draw in the VFL grand final. Essendon versus Melbourne, and Essendon lost the replay by 39 points. 1956 saw the installation of viable night lights at the South Melbourne grounds, lights that could actually allow play, and the first night series was hosted there between the eight teams that had missed out on a berth in the finals. The Olympic Games came to Melbourne in 1956, and there was much invested in televising the events. Along with the radio commentary, football was also to increase its coverage on TV, though for a time the live broadcasting of the final quarter of the game was banned to ensure that numbers at the games remained high. The broadcasts were only in black and white, of course, until colour arrived in Australia in 1975. 1958 saw a record crowd at a regular home and away match between Melbourne and Collingwood. 99,346 spectators saw Collingwood defeated that day. 1966 saw the introduction of a centre square, introduced to reduce congestion as play started. 1970 recorded the largest football crowd ever at the grand final between Carlton and Collingwood, with 121,696 persons present. At that time, the MCG still allowed standing room in some areas, but these days all areas are seated and there has been a growth in the corporate boxes and the bar and bistro areas, bringing in more money perhaps, but reducing the capacity for the ordinary spectators. So today, the seating capacity of the MCG is recorded as 100,024. So that 1970 record will remain. Carlton was to best Collingwood for the Premiership that year. A grand final always draws a capacity crowd no matter who's playing and I think that marks the interest in footy in general, not just a devotion to one's own team. 1976 saw the introduction of two field umpires and what a relief that must have been. Those guys must have really run their butts off. 1993 saw a third field umpire introduced. The 1980s saw the players wearing the world's shortest shorts. (laughs) 
but also saw the game experience a good dose of trauma and upheaval, particularly when the South Melbourne Football Club moved to Sydney and became the Sydney Swans. It was the first experiment here with privately sponsored teams, and for the supporters, not a development to be welcomed. At that time, the South Melbourne Club was in a desperate situation financially. According to Peak and Slattery, membership was down to 1,200, and they were at risk of folding completely. The VFL was keen to promote and grow the national competition and briefly supported them conditionally. In 1982, they were encouraged to play all their home games in Sydney, with a view to relocating there permanently. For a club with such a long local history, this was devastating for their supporters, generations of whom had followed the Bloods and barracked at their South Melbourne grounds. Playing at Sydney kept the club alive for another season, but it didn't solve their debt problem and it looked like they would still fold. A private consortium bought the club for $6.5 million to be rebadged as the Sydney Swans. While this may be common for soccer teams across Europe, here it was widely regarded as a new and unpleasant development for the people's game of Aussie rules football, a game that still grew its players from the grassroots suburban clubs and felt like their own game despite the development of big business around it in the recent decades. However, the consortium introduced glamour and Sydney bling to the old South Melbourne club. They marketed the team well and they drafted for success and the changes saw the Sydney Swans perform very well in the following years. The consortium, though, failed to make any money from the arrangement and then negotiated to sell it back to the VFL for $10 in 1988. Not discouraged, the VFL arranged another private buyout, which also failed within four years. Finally, the VFL oversaw a restructure which returned the Sydney Swans Club to public ownership in 1993. The VFL was to expand the competition to include many more interstate teams. The Victorian Football League became the Australian Football League, the AFL, in 1990, the name better representing the national competition, and they oversaw the growth of a larger national fixture. 1986 had seen the Brisbane Bears Football Club formed in Queensland, soon after the West Coast Eagles from Western Australia, then the Adelaide Football Club, then the Fremantle Football Club by 1994. The Brisbane Bears became the Brisbane Lions when the struggling Fitzroy Football Club in Melbourne, an old club also now under financial stress, took the AFL lifeboat off it and merged with the Brisbane team in 1996. That year also saw the VFA second-tier league renamed as VFL, and they remained the local feeder competition for the AFL. The 2010s saw the Gold Coast Football Club and the Greater Western Sydney Giants complete the league, making up the present 18-team competition. Finally, it's not just a game. Like most sports, footy is tribal, but it can be very bonding, bringing together strangers who follow the same team or giving you something to talk about even if you follow different teams, dissecting the recent play, the umpires, the most recent rule changes and the like. Aside from the weather, footy talk is probably the most used social lubricant, well, in Victoria at least. Sure, a small percentage of people are strongly anti-football and can't stand all the hoo-ha, and there's a small percentage like myself who have just never really taken a great interest in it. But in footy season, at least, you can hardly avoid it. For all the loud barracking and passion involved, friends generally attend a game, not only with mates who support their team, but with friends who follow the opposition too, and it's a great day out for all. 
Of course, there will always be the inevitable few jerks we know attend all types of public gatherings, resulting in some usually alcohol fueled argy-bargy at the game or at a sports bar and the like. So it's not always sweetness and light, but we can see in other codes some segregating of supporters to avoid trouble. Or we witness the aggression and rioting that some big games or international competition outcomes result in. Touch wood, we haven't really experienced that kind of aggro en masse for an Aussie Rules match. Apart from the small percentage of jerks mentioned earlier, in general, the angst of a game dissipates pretty quickly, and mostly opponents can have a beer together and maybe bond over a mutual loathing of some other team. But I do wonder if the strong family following and mixed-sex crowds that Aussie Rules has managed to maintain has helped to moderate the potential extremes. Many families have long traditions of generations barracking for a particular team, and the kids may well follow the family, or at least one of the parents, for their chosen team. But it's also perfectly acceptable, and not uncommon, for, say, a child in the family to be attracted to some other team when they're forming their interest in the game, adopting a club for its colours, for example, or its name. And who wouldn't love a team called the Doggies? (laughs) And the family has to go with that. Allegiances may be tested when each generation marries and other teams get brought into the family sphere, but you indulge in some good-natured ribbing and make room for their passions as well. In-laws will vie for the football soul of a new baby, (laughs) getting the appropriate team-coloured beanie on the new bub's head at the earliest. But in the end, the kids themselves will decide. And if the kids play junior footy, the family has years of turning up to chilly suburban ovals, dressed in their winter gear, to cheer and to barrack. And not so many years back, a Saturday afternoon would be punctuated by the car horns going off at the nearby oval every time someone kicked a goal. They play rain or shine, so many a match is watched from inside the cars parked all round the oval at your local club. It's daggy, but it's great fun. Of the game today, the AFL notes its objective as, quote, to maintain and enhance Australian football as the most spectacular game in the world. The game at AFL level must remain entertaining and exciting to watch and safe to play within the confines of a body contact sport, unquote. And that's our game, folks. So I think I'll finish my limited look at the AFL history here, but stay tuned for an announcement about future shows after the siren. (laughs) It's been a fun exploration of a new topic for me, but it took me much longer than I expected, and so the indigenous rounds that prompted the idea have come and gone before I released it. Still, the season continues, and as Roy and HG once said, too much sport is never enough. It's unbelievable that it's happened! I just want to finish up though, as I enter my fourth year of podcasting, I have to advise that I can no longer keep up the pace. I will certainly continue working on stories and releasing them as I have them ready, but I'll be unlikely to continue doing so monthly. It goes without saying that we've all had a trying couple of years and things have changed for many of us, including myself. I can no longer get easy access to the resources I need and time to do the research is now much more limited. I feel to do these great stories justice, I just can't rush them, so I don't want to work to a deadline anymore. I will get the stories out to you as soon as they're in good shape. 
Because the shows may not be released regularly from now on, I will be closing down my Patreon account. Anyone who continues to enjoy the work I do and wants to contribute can choose the one-off donation link on the webpage, of course, but I will soon close down that Patreon option. And I sincerely thank all of those who've signed up in support of the show to date. I will have sent you a private message about all of this, so please have a look at that in your email if you haven't seen that yet. I'll also remind you that I've moved my main email address to aushistpod at gmail.com. That's A-U-S-H-I-S-T-P-O-D at gmail.com, as they do a better job of recognising and weeding out the spam. That should help me not to miss the genuine emails amongst the tons of rubbish. Though I should say, I'm still notoriously slow at getting to my emails, so that probably won't change. I will update all the web pages to reflect the above changes and to add the podcast recommendation page that I promised earlier as soon as I can get some time available. So now my podcast suggestions this time will revolve around footy. If you're a football fan, here's a few to try during the footy season if you haven't already discovered them. And of course the links will be on my webpage. Coulda Been Champions is brilliant. It's a long-running and highly amusing comedy show looking at all aspects of the game, upcoming matches and AFL-related items of interest. The Outer Sanctum is an unconventional all-female footy podcast that features passionate fans providing interesting and amusing commentary and discussing a range of topics related to the game. Lace Out celebrates the great game and people of Australian rules football with a weekly wrap-up of the news and the games. Thanks for listening today. I think I'll be turning to a more conventional historic event to explore for next time. Maybe Governor Bly and the Rum Rebellion. So I hope you'll enjoy returning to a colonial saga when that arrives in your podcast feeds. Have a safe and happy few weeks anyway, and I'll catch you next time. Cheers, everyone. It's going to finish at the punt road end of the ground. Massive crowd today. The Tigers...